Chapter 32 changes gears a little bit for us here in our study through Exodus. Changes gears quite drastically, actually. We've been tracking with Moses, who's been up on the mountaintop, right, as he's receiving instructions from the Lord regarding the tabernacle, the place of worship, the place of God revealing his presence there in the Holy of Holies. Moses is getting instructions on all the furnishings of the tabernacle right down to the garments for the priesthood. And so we've been tracking through seeing all the instructions and, and how, again, just the, the tabernacle, the, the furnishings are all, you know, looking ahead to and pointing to various aspects of Jesus and his character and his life. It's so awesome. It's wonderful. And so here we are now in chapter 32. And, and here's we get into the into this chapter, we're reminded of what's going on back on the ground. And it's revealing for us this reality that we still encounter today, that we see, you know, the power of God up, up above us, and that's revealed on the top of the mountain that Moses is at, but yet we see sin and rebellion down below on the ground. But in the middle where Moses was, as he's meeting with the Lord, there's a tabernacle where sinful man can be provided with an opportunity to meet with the loving God. God's making all the, the arrangements to bless his people, but yet the people are growing impatient and they begin to take matters into their own hands as we see here in chapter 32. And we're reminded in this account that it was not hard to get Israel out of Egypt, but it was another thing altogether to get Egypt out of Israel. All right, and that's gonna be an ongoing progression that we're gonna see with the nation of Israel as we continue on through uh, God's word. But look at chapter 32, verse one with me, and here's what we read. Now, now when the people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain, the people gathered together to Aaron and said to him, come make us gods that shall go before us for, as for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And Aaron said to them, hey, break off the golden earrings which are in the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters and bring them to me. So all the people broke off the golden earrings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and he fashioned it with an engraving tool and made a molded calf. Then they said, this is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. So we're gonna see a few different problems that we uh, have arising out of this situation. First problem was their lack of faith. If you're taking notes, write that down. First problem, lack of faith. Because verse one just says that when the people saw that Moses delayed, it's not that Moses delayed, it's that God was still at work, right? And so often we think when things are not lining up with our timing, with how we would like to see things done, we begin to think, well, we better take action. We better step in and help God out. Maybe he needs our assistance in some way. See, the people down below aren't sure what happened to Moses. They don't realize that God is bringing forth this good and perfect plan. They don't see all that's going on, so they devise their own plan. And it's the way that we often operate when we feel that God perhaps is delaying in our lives, right? When we don't have immediate answers, we tend to stop walking by faith and move into taking our own course of action, into this idea that maybe God just needs us to do a little bit more to help him out. And all we end up doing, as these people are doing, wasting their God-given treasures and end up with an inferior outcome. Failure to trust God is sin and it leads to countless other sins. And it's what we see as the scene continues on. Because notice what the second problem is. The first problem was that they are having a lack of faith. The second problem is that they're trying to appease the people, particularly Aaron. And we're seeing a real leadership issue in this chapter. Or actually, I think you could say in this chapter, we're seeing a real uh, a comparison of proper leadership. Aaron versus Moses. Look at what we see with, with Aaron here. Because not only did the people lack faith and, and trust in God, but Aaron's big folly was having a fear of man rather than of God. And, and the people are all wondering, we gotta do something. They gathered to Aaron and said to him, come, make us gods that shall go before us. Now Aaron right then and there, 
Because I said, hold up, guys. That's a bad idea. That's not going to go well for us. But what does Aaron do? He appeases the people. Say, okay, just give me what you got here. Give me some of your gold earrings. Aaron sought to please men rather than please God. Paul would say in Galatians 1 verse 10, for do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I still pleased men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. Paul got it very well. He had a choice each and every day. Am I going to be seeking to be pleasing to men or pleasing to God? See, a fear of man causes you to compromise and be conflicted in doing what God shows you to do, in doing what you know to be right. If you're seeking to please man, you're not going to be pleasing to God. So instead of trusting God and fearing him, they, they gave up on him and created a new God for themselves. So we see a lack of faith. We see an appeasing of man instead of God. And then the third problem we see in this passage is that there's real disobedience taking place. Notice the repetition of that word break in verses two and three. And Aaron said to them, break off the golden earrings. Verse three, so all the people broke off the golden earrings. The very gifts that God had given them, they broke off. I think it's rather symbolic of them breaking the covenant that they had made with God. This precious gift of God's commands that were to ensure life were now being thrown aside and tossed aside. Again, for that inferior product. I mean, these were people that had all responded very favorably when God gave the covenant to them there. In, in Exodus 24, verse 3, they all, the people answered the one voice and said, all the words which the Lord has said we will do. Now, I mean, they were maybe a little bit presumptuous in saying that. But their heart is right. They're all like, hey, we, we want to follow this. But now they're throwing it all aside. They're walking in disobedience. And it didn't last long, did it? I mean, Moses had been up on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. We're not talking, a, we're not talking years or even months here. We're talking weeks. People are very fickle. And before we begin to see with holy indignation at the fickleness of Israel, how often do we break God's word? How often do we let little sins slide? How often do we resemble that fickleness of one day saying, God, I am yours, the next day we're living for self. Every single yielding to temptation is every bit of breaking of God's commands, no matter if it's producing an ungodly attitude or producing a golden calf. And we're very good at, at categorizing sins and thinking that there's safe or acceptable sins, and then there's other ones that are, are definitely the more heinous sins. But every sin begins in the heart, and it's seen before God, and it's a breaking of God's word. Every sin is a turning aside from God's best. The thing that plagued Israel over and over was this area of idolatry. And that was a gross misconduct of, of this loyalty and obedience to God. And these things began in the heart. We can look at idolatry and think, and I would never fall prey to that. But this is more than just fashioning a physical idol and worshiping it. This becomes about giving your loyalty to another, whether it's a person or a thing, and giving that loyalty in place of God. And that leads to our fourth problem, that of idolatry. First, there was that lack of faith. Secondly, they were appeasing men and not God. Thirdly, that disobedience, breaking off God's covenant, which now leads to idolatry. Fourth problem. Now, what is idolatry exactly? Look at what Marita said in his commentary. He said, what is idolatry? Idolatry is putting something or someone in the place of God. Idols are counterfeit gods. Anything you seek to give you what, anything you seek to give you what only Christ can give you, whether it's joy, security, peace, meaning, significance, identity, and salvation, it becomes an idol. Many do not believe idolatry is a problem because they only associate idolatry with shrines, temples, or carved images. But heart idolatry exists everywhere. Common idols include money, sex, a romantic relationship, peer approval, competence, and skill. 
secure and comfortable circumstances, beauty, brains, and success and ambition, to name, I'd say, a few. If our pursuit or our comfort rests in these things more than they do God, you have an idol. If your pursuit or comfort derives from things apart from God, then you have an idol. And it all comes down to Israel's first problem seen in this passage. Are you going to trust God? Are you going to surrender to Him and live for Him? Or are you going to remain tied to other things in hopes that they will provide the help that you need? In relying on something else to be your help. People move in idolatry when they perceive God how they want Him to be as well. Today... There are many that will say, oh, listen, I, I don't believe that God would judge people for doing what they want to do. As long as they're loving one another, as long as we're not hurting one another, God is love after all, and that's all he wants from us. And there are people that fashion God into an image that they have from thinking, this is the God that I worship. And if it is contrary to God's word, if it's different than the God of the Bible, then you have an idol. And there are a lot of people that are saying, oh, well, no, I don't really follow the Bible. This is who God is to me. And they may think that they are worshiping God, but if it conflicts with God's word, if they fashion God into an image that they think God is to be, then they've simply made an idol for themselves. It's not the complete picture of the God of the Bible. Worship, to be true, as Alexander says, must be based on a right perception of God. The book of Exodus emphasizes the importance of knowing God as he truly is and not as we imagine him to be. What is your view of God? Is it something that you have designed for yourself that fits what you like about God? Or does it truly line up with the God of the Bible, with what God's word says. People too often make God in their own image and in so doing, they're guilty of idolatry. And we need to be careful of that. We look at Israel and it became the, the, the besetting sin for that nation. And we can look at, at that and go, oh, well, yeah, that's, I mean, that's Old Testament stuff. They're surrounded by idols. That was a common thing. That's not our problem. And yet all through the New Testament, again, we're, we're reminded, avoid idolatry. Stay away from idols. This is not something that we may deal with in the way of carved images today. But it's anything that we design, that we look to, whether it's even that concept of God. And if it's something that is designed and created to fit what we want that might bring comfort to us if it's apart from God's word, it's an idol. And how we need to be careful of anything that, that gets a hold of our heart, that becomes a, a pursuit for us, that becomes the, the go-to when times are difficult. If it's not the Lord, if that's not your chief passion, and we need to evaluate, is there idolatry in my life? So Aaron, we read here, received the gold from their hand. Now, the gold that was going to be used for the building of the temple and its furnishings, they passed on to Aaron. They replaced God's best Again, for that inferior product, didn't they? That's what idolatry and sin will always do. Aaron took this gold and fashioned it into molded calf. Idolatry will always replace God's best with something that is far inferior. Now, why, why a calf? You go, why, why would they design something like this? Because this is what they've seen in Egypt. That was a principal god in Egypt. Apis was his name. More so, this was seen as the vehicle on which a god rode in power and as such they identified it as divine itself oftentimes in in worshiping other gods they would have this animal that would kind of be the thing that they would see their god 
coming forward in in power. Some would argue that in making this golden calf, they were doing so to worship Yahweh, to worship the one true God, but they were not worshiping God in a prescribed way or in an honoring way. Look at what Aaron attempted to do in verses five and six. We read, so when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. Then they rose early on the next day, offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. See, what does Aaron try to do? He tries to mix these two forms of worship. Say, here we got a calf, but let's worship God. Let's proclaim tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. He's bringing compromise. Never are we, try, are we to try and blend what is divine with that which is not. That's why we're called to be holy, isn't it? To be set apart and, and set apart from the things of the world and set apart to the Lord. Aaron would eventually wear, remember, as the, as the, uh, the high priest, we already saw back in Exodus 28, that that high priest was to have that, that uh, banner across their head saying, holiness to the Lord. It was to be a reminder to them that they were to be set apart from the Lord, that there wasn't to be a mixing of anything that was not of God. They were to be set apart, holy and completely consecrated to God. All we do for the Lord is to be set apart from, is to be sanctified and holy. It's not to be tainted by that which is not set apart for him. And Aaron is very far from that right now in this action that he's taking. They're trying to take an act of worship to God but combine it with something that is completely idolatry. See, now when you read there that the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play, it's not depicting just an innocent act, like they're sitting around singing, you know, or, or doing, uh, what's that game? I just drew a blank there. I can't forget. I forget it now. <laughs> Oh, uh, ring around the rosy. Did somebody just say that? Did you say it? That's what I was thinking, ring around the rosy. They're not just singing some childhood games. Oh, it's so fun. Isn't this great? No, this is not depicting an innocent act. The idea here is that they were carousing with one another, most likely in sexual activity, as was oftentimes incorporated into idolatrous worship. We've seen that even in our study through Corinth or through Corinthians in the city of Corinth. There was great sexual activity at the least there's great immorality that's taking place here in this depiction of them sitting down to eat and drink and, and rising up to play. See, it never goes well when you enter into a life of compromise. When you think you can blend that which is of God with that which is of the world. Many people are trying to play both sides. It's been said that there are, are many who have too much of the world in them to be happy in Jesus but too much Jesus in them to be happy in the world. And they're stuck in the middle, in compromise, not finding any joy at all. Straddling the fence is a dangerous and very uncomfortable place to be, oftentimes. Listen to what Marita says here. He says, today there's a whole church culture that reflects this story. We want to do away with what scripture says about worship and do it our way. As a result, the attenders are mere consumers of worship. They're led by Aaron-like individuals who pander to the people. By contrast, God's way of worship puts the gospel on display. God-centered, gospel-saturated worship shows sinners how they can be forgiven and worship the Holy One. That's what the tabernacle displayed, the very gospel. We must remember that worship is about glorifying God and not gratifying self. The golden calf is what people wanted. The calf could not talk. The calf was not feared. The calf could be manipulated for one's own desires. People do not want a holy God who speaks and confronts them. Be careful. You can do things in the name of the Lord, but still not worship the Lord. Be careful. You can have some orthodox acts of worship. They had a feast and made offerings, but yet worship unacceptedly. The story is revealing to us that Slippery soap that we can enter into when we begin to move away from God's best and begin to accept inferior things and slowly slide into that area of disobedience, lacking faith, appeasing others and 
moving into idolatry. Well, notice what verse 7 says as the Lord jumps onto the scene here. And the Lord said to Moses, Go get down, for your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They've turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. They've made themselves a molded calf and worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. Notice the Lord says, Moses, take action here. The people have, have quickly turned aside quickly out of the way which I've given to them. And I love the exchanges that we get between God and Moses oftentimes in, in Exodus as, as God is using Moses to be the leader of, uh, uh, and directing them people you know, to the promised land. There's a lot of great exchanges that you see here. Moses often you know, would say to God, God, they're your people. He'll say it in, in, in our chapter 32, verse 11. But notice, it's God here that says, hey, Moses, your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt. It's kind of like parents, you know, when they're having a bad day with their kids, they'll oftentimes say, did you hear what your son did today? It's never my son when they're acting bad. It's like, did you hear what your son did today? We're always trying to pass it on to somebody else. This is your problem. That's what, you know, God says, hey, your people whom you brought out of, I'm, I'm sure Moses like, wait a second. That's not the way the story is unfolding in my mind here. And Moses is going to remind him of that in a second. But look at verse 9. And the Lord said to Moses, I've seen this people, and indeed it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, that I may consume them, and I will make of you a great nation. Then Moses pleaded with the Lord his God and said, Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Verse 12, why should the Egyptians speak and say he brought them out to harm them, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce wrath and relent from this harm to your people. Remember, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have spoken of, I give to your descendants and they shall inherit it forever. Interesting here how the Lord calls the people here, how in, in verse nine, they are indeed a stiff necked people. That's the idea of them being very stubborn. It's the first time he calls Israel this, so it's not going to be the last time he calls Israel a stiff-necked people, right? It's elsewhere translated obstinate in Isaiah chapter 48 and hard-heartedness in Ezekiel chapter 3. Again, the idea here is, is God saying they're very stubborn people. It's interesting because that's a, a fitting description of what you'd oftentimes you know, referred to as a, a cow, an animal that's not wanting to move the way that you want them. Sometimes those bulls can just get very stiff-necked. And what are they worshiping? A golden calf. They're becoming like what they worshiped. It's what the Word of God says will happen. Look at Psalm 115, verse 48. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes they have, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Noses they have, but they do not smell. They have hands, but they do not handle. Feet they have, but they do not walk. Nor do they mutter through their throat. Those who make them are like them. So is everyone who trusts in them. We become like what we worship. And we need to be aware of that. What are you following? What is your heart pursuing after? The people here are turning away from God. Quickly, God says, they're worshiping a golden calf, and God calls them fittingly a stiff-necked people. Now in verse 10, God gives Moses a way out. He proposes striking this group down and starting over with Moses. That's a pretty lucrative offer, isn't it? I mean, if I were Moses, I'd be thinking, God, give me a couple moments here to think about this. That actually has got a nice ring to it. Whole new nation. After me, that's not bad. That was an offer originally given to Abraham. And now Moses is thinking, wow, I could be songs sung about me for generations to come. Father Moses had many. That would be great. It's got a good ring to it. But Moses isn't moved by selfish ambition. He's moved with compassion for his people. 
Notice how Moses here, what we looked at, begins to intercede for the nation. And Moses pleads with God based on three factors. God's grace, God's glory, and God's goodness. Look at this. His, his grace, first of all, because what does Moses say in verse 11? Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and the mighty hand. Again, Moses reminds God, Lord, they're not my people. They're your people. You're the one that's brought them out of the land. But notice, God, you've done that right from the get-go by your grace. You didn't deserve, they didn't deserve your mighty hand working on their behalf. They didn't deserve that. Your grace right from the get-go has delivered them out of Egypt. So Moses pleads with God based on his grace. Why stop now, God? You've acted all along by your intervention on their behalf and your grace working on their behalf. Why stop now? So Moses calls out to God, pleads with them based on his grace. Secondly, based on God's glory. Notice what he says in verse 12. Why should the Egyptians speak and say, he brought them out to harm them, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce wrath and relent from this harm to your people. Moses' concern was that this could be, become an occasion now for other people to begin to kind of mock God and say, well, look at this God. He's brought them up, but for what purpose? Just to kill them? What kind of a God is that? And Moses pleads with God to say, God, your, your name's going to be defamed out of this. And so he pleads with God based on his glory to uphold his glory. Don't give people the opportunity to question your, your might or your wisdom in delivering this people, God. Let your glory shine through in how you, you bring them through. So it's based on his grace, based on his glory, but thirdly, based on his goodness. Look at verse 13. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self, and said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven. And all this land that I have spoken of, I give to your descendants, and they shall inherit it forever. God has already promised, right, to multiply the descendants of Abraham. Yeah, he could start over with Moses, but it'd be a little bit different than his original promise. So God says, or Moses pleads with God, says, God, your, your, your promises have been given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And again, all by your grace, all by your goodness. Not that they deserved it, but you, out of your goodness, was going to bring them into a land. You had promises for them and for their descendants to inherit. God, let your goodness win out in continuing to uphold these promises. Moses displays the heart of an intercessor here, pleading with God on behalf of others. And notice the outcome we read, verse 14. So the Lord relented from the harm which he said he would do to his people. And Moses turned and went down from the mountain and the two tablets of the testimony were in his hand. The tablets were written on both sides, on the one side and on the other they were written. Now the tablets were the work of God and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. So notice what we read in verse 14, that the Lord now, after Moses pleads with God and intercedes on behalf of the people to God, it says that God relented. The King James Version uses the word repented there. Now you might ask, did God repent? Does God ever need to repent of anything? Did God change his mind? Did God have to be calmed down from this fit of rage that he was feeling towards the nation of Israel? Absolutely not. The, the problem is kind of with the language here. Moses uses anthropomorphic language here, which is man-centered language. It's using human language in an attempt to describe an infinite, outside of humanity, God. We oftentimes attribute human features to God, even though he doesn't have human features, in trying to explain an infinite God through human language. That's what's kind of happening here. It doesn't always mesh. But we know from Numbers 23, 19, it says, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said and will he not do? Or has he spoken and will he not make it good? So what's exactly happening here? 
Well, God, through his actions, put it into the heart of Moses to pray and intercede in this way. Moses was inspired by God to do this. God acted in a way that he knew would move Moses in a specific way. See, Moses' prayer didn't change God or change the mind of God, but it did change the standing of the people in God's sight. It certainly changed the way that God acted. Moses was developing in all this and displaying God's own heart for the people through this encounter. And God calls us to intercede for others as well. And as we do, guess what? We begin to develop that heart of God for the world, for the people. God is oftentimes looking for someone to stand in the gap. As Ezekiel twenty-two thirty says, So I sought for a man among them who would make a wall and stand in the gap before me on behalf of the land that I should not destroy it, but I found no one. God is often looking for someone to stand in the gap and intercede. And pray and carry out the heart of the Father. Reichen says, this is really the story of our own salvation. God is up on his holy mountain. We are down on earth. And like the Israelites, we are floundering in the folly of our rebellion against God. Our idolatry leads to immorality. What we need is someone like Moses. We need someone to come down and intercede for us. Someone who can turn away God's wrath. The message of the gospel is that God has given us a mediator. When he saw our sin, he wanted to save us. So he sent his son to intercede for our salvation. As the scripture says, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. It is as if God said, go down, Jesus. Go on down. Go down because your people, the ones I gave you from all eternity, have become corrupt. They are living in sin. They've turned away from my law to worship other gods. And unless you intercede for them, they will surely be destroyed by my wrath. And Jesus indeed came down to not just intercede for us, but to save us. And to do the work for us that we couldn't do for ourselves. Praise the Lord for that. And reading on in verse 17. And when Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there is a noise of war in the camp. But he said, it's not the noise of the shout of victory, nor the noise of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing I hear. So it was as soon as he came near the camp that he saw the calf and the dancing. So Moses' anger became hot and he cast the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. It was at this moment Moses realized he should have bought the apple care. <laughs> now, the people were giving their all in their worship of this fake God. It sounded like war in the camp. That's what Joshua said. More so, it was spiritual warfare going on because the enemy was having a heyday among the people. And Moses recognized that. It's the sound of singing I hear. And the idea again is that, that idea of just, you know, carousing and and immorality taking place. Moses breaking these tablets again was symbolic of how Israel had broken their covenant with God. They'd broken the, the very first three commandments of God's law, that they are to have no other gods before me. They're not to make a, a carved image, and they're not to take the Lord's name in vain. They've done all three of these just within this act with the golden calf. They've broken God's law. We know James says, if you've broken just one part of it, it's as though you've broken it all. And here the tablets that contain these laws written. It said at the end of chapter 31, with the finger of God, Moses slams down, they're broken. As the very covenant that Israel said, all the Lord has said we will do. They've completely broken it, violated it. And look at Moses' actions here in verse 20. Then he took the calf which they had made burned it in the fire and ground it to powder and he scattered it on the water and made the children of Israel drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you have brought so great a sin upon them? So Aaron said, do not let the anger of my Lord become hot. You know the people that they are set on evil. For they said to me, make us gods that shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what's become of him. 
And I said to them, whoever has any gold, let them break it off. So they gave it to me and I cast it in the fire and this calf came out. How good, huh? Now, with Moses coming to them now, he sees all that's really going on. And it almost can appear like a bit of an overreaction to how the people drink this idol powder. But what's Moses doing by that? He's having people identify with their sin. It let them see the futility and harm that comes from turning aside from God's ways to follow our own ways. They're now drinking a God that they were worshiping. It doesn't get much more futile than that, does it? And remember, what goes in must come out. <laughs> They're going to have some colorful waste upon them. But it's again a lesson of idolatry. No matter how colorful it might be, it's just a bunch of waste. It gets you nowhere. It helps in no way. And it's interesting how, how Aaron in all this is just so quick to kind of pass the blame on others, right? It, it, he says, you know the people, they are set on evil. What, what do you expect me to do? It's the people, they're set on evil. It's like the oldest trick in the book, going right back to Adam, blaming Eve right in the Garden of Eden. Adam saying, it's the woman whom you gave to be with me, God. If you didn't give me the woman, wouldn't have any problems, right? That's kind of what Adam's saying. He's passing the blame as Aaron is doing. And and we, again, are so prone, aren't we, to try and find excuses or pass blame for sin, for actions that we've done. Where we look, well, if this person wasn't around, then I wouldn't have done this. If this didn't happen, then I never would have done this, God. And we're so quick to kind of pass the blame. But what God wants from us is simply confession, owning our sin and coming to him in repentance. When you've sinned, don't let that sin drive you from God. Don't let that sin try to lead you to make amends on your own by trying to excuse it. Bring it to God in confession. It's what the word calls us to do. Psalm 34, 18, the Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and saves such as have a contrite spirit. Have that humility and brokenness and repentance before God. Psalm 51, verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise. Proverbs 28, 13. He who covers his sins will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes him will have mercy. That's what we're called to do when we are found in sin, when we have recognized that we've broken God's word. Don't try to excuse it or pass the blame Bring it to the Lord in confession, in humility. Because it's that contrite spirit, it's that contrite heart that God's not going to despise. That God's not going to say, well, sorry, no, that's one too many times. You've hit your quota this week, man. I'm not going to forget. God's not going to do that. You'll find mercy and grace when you bring it to the Lord. Don't try to excuse it as Aaron is doing here. Now, Aaron tells the truth to Moses as far as where he got the goods for the calf, but then commits a huge lie and saying, hey, you know, we took the gold and put the fire and boom, out came this calf. Man, I don't know how that happened. I, I just took the gold, that's all. Threw the fire and boom, it, it just popped out that way. I had no idea. Yet when we read earlier in the chapter that, that Aaron fashioned and molded this calf. Sin rarely is something that just happens it just happens by accident it's a slippery soap that we need to be so careful of see temptation was there with Aaron he walked in compromise he acted upon that temptation he could have stopped at any time he could have stopped the people even saying oh we got to find another God don't know where Moses is or what's gotten on, what's what's happened to him Aaron could have stopped this at any time but he allowed People that began to have influence, he began to listen, he began to take action, taking the gold, he began to fashion these things. Sin rarely is just something that we end up going, I don't know what happened. It just all of a sudden, boom, was there. Too many people have followed in a sin, into a sin and come out saying it just 
kind of happen as though they don't know what's going on or didn't have any control. We need to be aware that the enemy is constantly opposing us and wanting to trip us up. Every day we need to be on guard knowing that we are frail and, and can easily succumb to sin and, and temptation. But we need to stand guard and know that God always gives us a way out. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 tells us, no temptation is overtaken except such as is common to man. But God's faithful will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation will also provide a way out. But you need to take it. Don't dwell on that temptation. Don't entertain it. Don't think about it. Find that escape route that God provides for you and run through it. Look at verse 25 with me now. When Moses saw that the people were unrestrained, for Aaron had not restrained them to their shame among their enemies, then Moses stood in the entrance of the camp and said, whoever's on the Lord's side, come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered themselves together to him. And he said to them, thus says the Lord God of Israel, let every man put his sword on his side and go in and out from entrance to entrance throughout the camp and let every man kill his brother, every man his companion, and every man his neighbor. So the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses and about 3,000 men of the people fell that day. Then Moses said, consecrate yourselves today to the Lord that he may bestow on you a blessing this day for every man has opposed his son and his brother. Now, if you thought Moses having them drink their idle protein shake was an overreaction, you may feel the same about this scene. It, it seems like this is a little harsh, but you have to take into account what's riding on all this as well. Because God is not going to preserve a nation that would uphold his word, that would remain true and pure, and eventually be the nation that the Messiah is going to come through. If this nation lost the plot, it could disrupt the salvation of future generations. So Moses has the idolaters cut off so that the sin would not continue to infect the camp and bring further ruin. It's like if you had cancer, do you just treat it gently? Let it linger to see if it might change? Or do you do everything you can to get that out of you, to zap it, kill it, remove it? It's exactly what's happening here with the nation of Israel. An opportunity is given, though, for people to take a stand and to repent and choose to stand on the Lord's side. God doesn't just do this now and say, that's it, you're all out. Who's going to take a stand now for the Lord? Who's going to turn from where they were and now stand on the Lord's side? This chance is continually given to all people. Every single one of us no longer, I mean, no matter what you've done, as long as you've got breath in your lungs, you have an opportunity to repent of sin and stand on the Lord's side. It's never too late. There's never a cause by which you forfeit the right to choose the Lord. And here... We see it's the Levites who take a stand. Interesting because Aaron was of the house of Levi. The very guy that kind of got the ball rolling with the golden calf. Or at least followed the uh, advice of the people. He's the house of Levi. And, and so it's not a stretch to say that the Levites may have participated in this act. And yet here they are now recognizing the futility, the harm of that. And are choosing to repent and to stand on the truth now. They're looking to reestablish their covenant with God. And the Levites had to take a real stand. Because notice it says that they had to even oppose their neighbor, their brother, for the sake of truth. They had to go against those that they loved. And it didn't seem like the loving thing to do, but truth needed to prevail even above a seemingly unloving action but it's love for God that must always lead our actions toward others and as they went out with their swords we're told that about 3,000 of the people died that day interestingly when the spirit was poured out on the day of Pentecost it's 3,000 people that were saved just like we saw in 2nd Corinthians 3 verse 6 for the letter kills but the spirit gives life 
Now, because the Levites took such a stand for God, we're told that they would receive a blessing. Verse 29 again says, The most that consecrate yourselves, speaking to the Levites today, to the Lord, that he may bestow on you a blessing this day, for every man is opposed to his son and his brother. What was that blessing? Well, they'd be consecrated. They'd be set apart as the priestly tribe. They would have the privilege of serving God in the tabernacle. It's a reminder that blessing follows obedience and greater responsibility follows faithfulness. They were faithful to stand for the Lord and now they're going to be given even greater privilege and responsibility. They're going to be blessed now as that priestly tribe. Continue on in verse 30. We see again now Moses' further intercession. Now, it came to pass, verse 30, on the next day that Moses said to the people, you have committed a great sin. So now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Then Moses returned to the Lord and said, oh, these people have committed a great sin and have made for themselves a God of gold. Yet now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, I pray, blot me out of your book, which you have written. And the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. Now therefore go lead the people to the place of which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit for punishment, I will visit punishment upon them for their sin. So the Lord plagued the people because of what they did with the calf which Aaron made. So again, we see Moses interceding once again. The first time he interceded, he was up on the mountain. He didn't really see the gravity of the sin going down in the camp below. Now he sees it all. He's like, oh man, I got to intercede again for these people. That was a lot more than I was expecting uh, to be happening there. He's decided this time though that he needs to make atonement for their sin. And this is something Moses seems to think that no lamb or bull is sufficient for. What does Moses do instead? He willingly offers himself as a sacrifice. Do you catch that verse 32 yet? Now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, I pray, blot me out of your book which you have written. Once again, we see the great heart of Moses as an intercessor, as a person that loves his nation, his people. It's the kind of attitude you see in a good leader. Aaron reveals to us that attitude of a leader that just wants to appease the people, never going to go far with that. But Moses, on the other hand, is willing to lay down his life. Just as Jesus, our good shepherd, lays down his life. He was willing to lose his life for the sake of saving others. It's what Paul prayed for his own people. There in Romans 9, 3, Paul says, For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to my flesh. Paul had such a heart. For the nation of Israel, his own countrymen, that he was willing to be accursed himself if it meant the salvation of others. So Moses says, blot me out of your book. Now, what's, what's the book that Moses seeks to be blotted out from? I believe it's the book of life. Mentioned in Psalm 69, verse 28, saying, let them be blotted out of the book of the living and not be written with the righteous. Revelation 3, 5 says, He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I'll confess his name before my Father and before his angels. God has a book of all the names written in it that are saved, that are standing in the righteousness of Christ, that have put their faith in Jesus, the Lamb's book of life. Ultimately, Moses would not be able to stand as their substitute. Why? Because Moses was a sinner like them. Every person must deal with their own sin. That's why it says there at the end of verse 33, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. Every person must stand account for their sin. And a man like Moses cannot atone for their sins. But here's, here's the problem. Under this requirement... I will blot him on my book. Who can then stand? Well, nobody can. That's why God was giving the tabernacle to provide atonement for their sin. 
But again, that was all looking forward to the ultimate sacrifice, the sinless one who would become our righteousness. Jesus would come and be that atonement for us. He would stand as that good and perfect substitute to stand in our place and provide a ransom for all. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. Jesus has provided the answer for us. Moses can't do it. Nobody else can do it. But Jesus has come as that atoning sacrifice to stand in the gap ultimately where he now sits interceding for us continuously and causing us to stand faultless before the Lord. And now, even though there's been rebellion in the camp, God will continue, we read, to lead his people. He says there, nevertheless in the day, or sorry, uh, verse 34, therefore go lead the people to the place to which I've spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Who's the angel? That's Jesus. He's going to go before them and be their help. It's a reminder again that apart from Jesus, we cannot enter in. Nevertheless, there's consequences for sin and rebellion. We understand we reap what we sow. God says the plague's going to be sent upon the people. We don't know what or what the outcome would be from that, but we do learn that you never get away with your sin. Thankfully, we have one that has laid down his life for sin, Jesus Christ. Receive him, worship him, don't let any idols into your life that would come between you and Jesus. He's the greatest thing that has ever happened to us. There are no replacements or substitutes. Just a bunch of counterfeits that might look shiny, but it's just a bunch of waste in the end. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Serve him. Worship him. He's everything to us, and we're grateful for that.